0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Hey, you know what? Before we settle in, uh, we've got some people standing and sitting on kind of the window sills. Can, can everybody kind of scoot into the middle? And if, if y'all want to move, you can stay where you want, where you are if you want, but if, if you want to move into regular seats that are more comfortable, it might help. Um, thank you guys for doing that. I really appreciate it. And now most of the people on the, you know, window sills aren't moving, so whatever. Um, <laughs> My name is West. If we haven't met, and um, I'm really excited to preach on Joshua six, six through twenty-seven. Let's go before the Lord and just ask for His help in this endeavor. Bow your heads with me. Lord, I pray that You would show us really great things about who You are. Uh, I pray that we would understand more of Your holiness, more of Your justice, so that we might understand more of Your grace, Father. Uh, I pray that you would quicken each and every person here, in, including me, to be convicted of the things that you want us to be convicted of so that we might live lives that are are markedly different than we would have been without your spirit. God, I pray that uh, the people of this church individually and, and then the people of this church collectively would, would glorify you and that we would we would be after your good purposes and that we would live in holiness. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how many of you know this guy, John Wooden, but he was an incredible basketball coach for the UCLA Bruins in the 1960s and early 70s. He, he won national championships like seven or eight times. I mean, it's like his numbers are, are amazing what he accomplished, And one of the favorite stories that I've heard about John Wooden is that every year at the beginning of the, of the basketball season, he has all these powerhouse recruits. I mean, guys like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, guys like Bill Walton. I mean, like unbelievable players on his team. And he starts every year, the first practice, with, with sitting in a chair in front of all of his blue chip recruits. And, and he teaches them how to put on their socks and then tie their shoes properly and and you might think well you, these guys are you know top tier athletes they know how to put on their shoes right but but his point in all of that is if you don't tie your shoes right your socks are going to bunch up and you're going to get a blister and if you get a blister you're going to miss games for the UCLA Bruins and if you miss games for the UCLA Bruins We're going to lose games, and if we lose games in the regular season, we're going to get a lower seed in in the NCAA tournament, and we're not going to win another national championship. And and so the details, the, the minute details, absolutely matter, and you have to treat your time at UCLA as such. John Wooden knew that the failure to execute in the little things could actually mean the difference to a national championship or an early exit in March Madness. Turn with me, if you would, to John, Joshua, chapter 6, verses, and we'll start with verses 6 through 15. I want to read this for you. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city "...going about at once, and they came back into the camp, the camp is called Gilgal, and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on and blew the trumpet continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually." And the second day, they marched around the city once, and then they returned into the camp, again called Gilgal. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day, and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. I mean, did that draw you in or what? Like, I mean, talking about something that's riveting, something that's compelling. Golly! Look, if you were here last week, this narrative probably feels incredibly plotting. Look, you might be here for the first time, and that narrative probably feels incredibly plotting. Like, there's no new information. In chapter 6, verses 2 through 5, which was part of last week's sermon, we covered all that information. God had already said to Joshua, all the same stuff. And now Joshua says it, and, and then it's said again, and then it's said again. And then the question I have today is why do you spend 10 verses, 10 verses, basically saying what could have been said uh, in, and Israel did as God directed? Literally, that, that could have been the summary. That, like, that could have been it. God told Joshua, Joshua told Israel and Israel did as God directed. That's way different. That's way different. Why? Why is there so much detail, so much repetition? What God told Joshua, Joshua told Israel and after Joshua told Israel, Israel did. They did it on the first day and then he goes through and they did it on the second day and they did it in the next four days. And on the seventh day, it was totally different. They did it seven times. Like, why? After 10 verses, do any of you get the sense that it would have been okay if Israel had cut it off at six days or five days? Like, is, is that what we get from this? like, hey, do it unless you don't feel like doing it. Look, let's, let's kind of play around with this a little bit, okay? What if Israel had said, you know what, I know that God has told us to take the ark with us, and it's about a 600-yard journey around you know, Jericho, you know, around the wall, and, and, and so we've got to carry the ark of the covenant with us once a day, 600 yards. And God is omnipotent. And so he doesn't get tired carrying the ark of the covenant, but we're not omnipotent. I don't think God understands how heavy the stinking ark is. Why don't we leave it at Gilgal? You, you think that would have been okay based on this text? What if they had said, hey, those trumpets, the ram's horns, they're called a shofar. I, I've blown a shofar. When you blow a shofar, it smells like death. Like it is, it is so nasty. And, and so what if Israel had said, you know, I, I get that he's telling seven priests to blow the horns continually, but man, I don't think God is really out ahead of how bad these things smell. And so instead of seven people doing it, we're just going to get one guy to blow the shafar because that's one seventh the smell of death that we're going to have to endure while we walk 600 yards with the Ark of the Covenant. And so we're just going to take a little bit of a shortcut. I, I get that what God said, but, but we're going to amend that You don't get the sense that that would have been okay after 10 verses detailing repetitively exactly what they're supposed to do. They got to do it for seven days. Once a day for six days, seven times on the seventh day. There's got to be seven horns. They're going to be blown continually. You don't bring six. You bring seven. Why do you bring seven? Because God said repetitively bring seven. Here's why I say all this. We gravitate toward obedience in some areas of life. And sometimes, when we're kind of proud of ourselves for being obedient in in this area of life, we we use our obedience in this area of life to justify ignoring some area of obedience in another area of life. Have you done that? Because I do that. I do that all the time. Maybe it's something like, you know what? I've been going to church for like seven weeks in a row. so righteous now. like God is lucky to have me. And, and look, if I want to have a little fun on Saturday night, that's my freedom. You ever do something like that? I've spent 45 years doing stuff like that. I, I think I'm doing pretty well in this area, and so I excuse neglect of what God has called us to in other areas. We gravitate toward obedience in some areas and use that as an excuse for disobedience in other areas. What is that? What is that? I'll tell you what it is. It's you playing God. It's me playing God. I, I get to decide what God really cares about, and I get to decide what God shouldn't really care about. I'm playing God. That's that's what it is. Christian maturity. Christian maturity is a joyful submission. And I, I want you to remember that I said joyful because I think joy is a big part of it. Christian maturity is a joyful submission to God in all aspects of life, even the aspects of life that we don't totally understand why, but we understand what he said. Christian maturity is a joyful submission to God in all aspects of life, knowing that he works first for his glory, and we exist for his glory, knowing that he works for his glory, but also his glory is absolutely to our benefit, even if we don't understand it. Our, his glory is to our benefit. Raises the question, are you stubbornly, and I'll bump it up a little bit, are you arrogantly holding on to a pet sin, something you know you shouldn't be doing? Because if you are, you're probably playing games with yourself. You're probably saying something like, hey, look, God gave me free will. I, I get to choose. And then you'll say, and, and when I choose even to disobey God, and I know that I'm disobeying God, we're, we're grace?" abounds, it enables that. You know, where my sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And and so you're not only playing God and saying what really matters and what doesn't matter, but, but then you're saying God's grace enables me to continue in a life that dishonors God and is not For my benefit, in fact, it is to my detriment. And we call it freedom to do what we want, but but really what's going on there, it's it's a deception. It's us entering back into a bondage. And what's so ridiculous about that, y'all, and I I hope you'll understand me in this, and trust me, I, I fall into it myself. Jesus died on a cross that we might be free we take the grace that gives us freedom and we use it to run headlong back into that from which he freed us from. It doesn't make any sense. It's absolutely ridiculous. And, and we try to claim theology that enables it. Do you understand how silly I am when I do that? Do you understand how silly you are when you do that? Let's let's resolve today. I I get that we're going to fight against our sin, and let's fight well, and let's not succumb to really bad logic, justifying bad theology, justifying bad action. Let's just stop it. Let's just knock it off. Let's actually live in the freedom that God afforded us when Jesus mounted a cross. That's absolutely what he wants. Let, let's look now at verses 16 through 21. He goes on to say, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel. Oh, I screwed this up. <laughs> we're going to start in verse 16, which is going to make a lot more sense. <laughs> and we're going to go down to verse 21. And at the, se- at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city... But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all of the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. There's a lot going on here. We're going to try to break down a lot of it. It appears that the story is starting to pick up steam in verse 16. After 10 verses that are really plodding and repetitive, it starts to pick up steam in verse 16. And and then in verse 17, there's kind of a dramatic pause, and, and the pause is for the sake of instruction. Okay, so let me explain what I mean. If you're following the narrative flow, we'd go straight from verse 16 to verse 20. Let me read that again. It says, And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city. Now we go straight to verse 20. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city. Every man straight before him and captured the city. They devoted all to the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. So that's the narrative. The question is, Why do you put verses 17 through 19 right in the middle of that? It's this dramatic pause for instruction. It's kind of like the Princess Bride. Remember, you get sucked into the narrative of the Princess Bride, like this story is unfolding, and all of a sudden it pauses, and the grandpa is lecturing the grandson who's sick. Hey, you look a little bit nervous. Let me explain what's going on here. And it's this weird pause, and you're like, ah! What's going on in verse 17 through 19? I'm not saying God didn't say the things in verses 17 through 19. I just don't think he said them right after Joshua says, shout, and then it goes in verse 20. And so the people shouted. Hey, it doesn't make any sense. I think what happened is Joshua said that earlier, and and the author wrote it in at that point, right when they knew that it was a dramatic build, and he says, this is the time to give them the instruction. This is the time to give them the instruction. I'm really glad. Because the reality is in today's United States of America, the conquest of the promised land is often criticized, isn't it? Some of you have probably heard this argument, like how can you believe in a God who kills everyone in a village Every single Canaanite in the village of Jericho, and there's going to be more after this. How can you believe in that God? Because isn't that a God? Isn't that a God who is using some sort of aberration of manifest destiny to excuse genocide? That's the question. That's the criticism that you'll hear. Is Israel using some perversion of manifest destiny, like God's ordained it, we're going to kill everyone because we want the land. And if you're a Canaanite, you're dead. Is that fair? We don't think it's fair when Hamas kills Israelites because they're Israelites. We don't. We don't think if the Israelites turn around and and kill all the Palestinians, regardless of who they are, just indiscriminately. If they kill them, I'm not saying they do. But if they did that, we would say, whoa, that's out of bounds. Because that is starting to look like genocide. What is genocide? You might be a little behind on that. Genocide is a mass slaughter based on racial or ethnic bias. I'm going to kill everyone because they're Canaanites. I'm going to kill everyone because they're from a different tribe, whatever it is, than I am. Is that what's going on here? Look, This might not be your question. I promise this is someone's question. You need to know the answer. Canaanites weren't killed because of a racial or an ethnic bias. How do we know that? Rahab. Rahab is spared. Rahab is spared, so is her whole family spared. Why is that important? Because Rahab's a Canaanite. If this was all about an ethnic cleansing, you got to kill the whole family. I don't care what they did, they're bad because of their ethnicity. Rahab is the counter-argument. Rahab is actually the entity in this narrative that shows us that there's something else going on here. The reality is God wanted to protect Israel from the evil practices of the Canaanites. Deuteronomy chapter 20 verses 16 through 18. This is before Israel enters into the promised land. This is God speaking to Moses. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. Why? Verse 18 that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, plural, and so you sin against the Lord your God. The principal reason God has the Israelites kill all the Canaanites is because he doesn't want the Canaanites' bad behavior to bleed into His chosen people. The Canaanites weren't killed because of an ethnic or racial bias. Rahab proves that. The Canaanites were killed because they were engaged in what Deuteronomy chapter 20 says is abominable practices. They are judged by God for generational sin that was by this time culturally embraced. And look, Here's what's kind of crazy about this. If you look at Genesis 15, I'm kind of getting into the weeds here a little bit. I get it. Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 16. God, in his sovereignty, and his omniscience, calls his shots. He's talking to Abraham. This is way back. This is super early. And he says to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. That's Egypt. And will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Because that's how long they were enslaved in Egypt. For 400 years. And I will bring judgment on the nation. That's Egypt. That they serve. And afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. And they did. As for you. You shall go. This is to Abraham. To your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here to the promised land that they are not yet getting because they're going to be sojourners first. They shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I'm going to judge them I'm going to use Israel to judge them. I'm going to use Israel to judge them after they've served for 400 years in slavery. I'm going to deliver them out of slavery and then they will take the land that I have promised you. They will take the land that I have promised you from the Amorites. They will take it later, not now, because the Amorites' iniquity is not yet complete. But one day, at that point, it will be complete. And that's when I will use Israel to judge Israel. The abominable practices of the Ites. What are we talking about? When we we talk about abominable practices, what exactly are we talking about? Here's a list. I got a list for you. It's idolatry. Idolatry. It's fornication. Do you know what fornication is? Fornication is having sex with someone who is not your spouse. It's called an abomination. Sex with someone who's not your spouse. It's adultery. Adultery is different than fornication. Adultery is having sex with someone who's not your spouse when you're married. So like, I have sex with someone not named Mary Brazelton. That's adultery. Temple prostitution. That's part of what the Canaanites are doing. Homosexuality. Is part of that list. Incest, having sex with your kids. Bestiality, having sex with animals. Gang rape, child sacrifice. I read through this list idolatry, fornication, adultery, then you get to stuff, you know, homosexuality, temple prostitute, then you get to stuff like incest, bestiality, gang rape, child sacrifice. And you might be sitting out here. Thinking, hey, look, some of those aren't that bad. some of those aren't that bad. And I want to be sweet here, but but the question you ought to be asking if, if you're saying some of these things aren't that bad is, according to whom, according to whom? like it's, they're not that bad according to your frat bros, you know, according to your sorority sisters, according to the freshman philosophy. Prof who's an adjunct who's like a grad student, he's got long hair though, so he must be sophisticated. Like he says they're not bad, and and so you're like, yeah. Like according to who? Is it according to Twitter? Is it according to who you're following on Instagram? Like, how do you determine the list of what is an abomination? You, You see the point? Like, I'm I'm not trying to be mean. But according to whom? Look, the question you got to ask yourself, if, if a God who is holy, benevolent, like totally benevolent, he is good in everything that he is, if, if a holy, benevolent, omnipotent, omniscient God who created us in his benevolence says they're bad, who are you going to believe? You get it? Like, how do you determine your ethic? If he says they're bad, they're bad. And he, and he does say they're bad. They're an abomination. And, and both Deuteronomy chapter 20 and Joshua chapter 6 says that because of these things, things are devoted for destruction. That's a word that is used repetitively in our text today, as well as Deuteronomy, as well as Genesis. Genesis. Devoted for destruction. The the Hebrew word for devoted for destruction is harim. Okay, harim. And really, it just means devoted. Contextually, the vast majority of the time that that word is used in the Old Testament, it it does mean devoted for destruction. But every once in a while, it's used of Israel, and, and it's like devoted for holiness, devoted for God. Like Israel is devoted. Israel is harim. And so it means devoted, and contextually it's either for destruction or for holy purposes. Joshua 6, verses 18. We'll start with 17 and through 19. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, talking to Israel, but you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Do you get it? Israel, God has set you apart. You are devoted unto the holy purposes of God. Don't go back to the things devoted for destruction. You are devoted. God devoted Israel for holy purposes and he doesn't want them polluted by things devoted for destruction. Why does this matter? God isn't withholding good things from you. That is the lie that I've spent my life entertaining so that I can indulge sin. God is withholding good things from me. God, who is wholly benevolent, is in this case withholding good things that he created. And I'm not going to let him do that. I'm going to exercise my freedom to fight against a God who I've already called wholly benevolent because I think he's withholding good things from me. He doesn't withhold good things from me. That's a lie. He protects us from bad things. Why does he condemn idolatry? Because he doesn't want us to worship lesser gods. He wants us to worship him the living God. Why does he condemn fornication? Having sex with your girlfriend or your boyfriend Because he loves the institution of marriage which he created and he wants you to live in freedom and in security and and marriage is a protection for a gift that God has given you. That's why. So it's, it's not that he's withholding good things. He's protecting us from bad things that we might fully enjoy the good things. Look, this is an interesting thing that, that we've we've made up in our minds. We we often think when we think that God is withholding good things from us, we, we also also think, you know what? Maybe God doesn't really understand who I am or, or what I need. You know, he, he wrote this book a long time ago. And it, maybe it's a little bit dated, and and, and God, God doesn't understand my needs. People were getting married a lot earlier than you know, all that kind of stuff. You've said it. And, and it's just outdated. Maybe God doesn't understand. Well, okay, let's think that through. He's omniscient. He, he knows all things, right? That's what omniscient means. So if, if God knows all things, how can you say he doesn't know you? Wouldn't it be a lot more likely... Wouldn't it be a a lot more likely that instead of saying God doesn't understand me, to say instead I, a finite being, a sinful being, doesn't know an omnipotent, omniscient, all-benevolent, totally holy God? Isn't that more likely? So, So maybe the problem isn't that it is God who doesn't know us. That's not the problem. Maybe it's that we don't understand God. And I promise you, he's good. Like I, I don't say this because I'm down on anyone. I say this because I've struggled for 40 years against this very same line of deception. God is good and he is for us and he wants to give us good things and he wants to protect you from bad things. And I get that everyone around you is embracing the bad things. That doesn't mean the bad things are good. It's just how it works. Let's look at verses 22 through 25. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house, that's Rahab, and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her and they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. They were ceremonially unclean, so they had to be outside of the camp for a period of time. It's more than we have time to cover. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, in her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua, saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy in Jericho. So a couple of weeks ago, if you weren't here, Joshua sends two spies in. The people of Jericho kind of get wind that they're around. They're searching everywhere. The prostitute Rahab hides them up in kind of the materials of her ceiling. They get away. And the Joshua Joshua spies basically made a promise, we're going to take care of you. Rahab and all her family isn't just here to dispel the accusation of genocide. She is here to highlight the immensity and the glory of God's grace. Let me explain. In a town deserving because of abominable practices, that God says are abominable. It doesn't matter what the Canaanites or anyone else says about their practices. They are abominable practices because that town deserves holistic judgment. And it is coming. And yet there is a girl with a sordid past. She's a prostitute who believes in Yahweh. And the text earlier in the book of Joshua says, we heard that you parted the Red Sea and delivered the Israelites out. And that's all I need to know because my trinket gods haven't done anything like that for me. My trinket gods haven't delivered me. My trinket gods haven't made me happy. My trinket gods haven't given me jack. And your God provides for his people and I want that. And she is saved. Not only her, but her whole household. She is delivered from judgment, she is set apart, and ultimately she lives amongst God's chosen people. She was devoted for destruction, and Yahweh gave her faith in Him, and that led to works. If you're in a community group, this should sound familiar. A faith that leads to works that is the basis for which a guy named Joshua, and you translate that name into New Testament times, and it would be Jesus, saves her, saves her. The Canaanites, when they saw that the Israelites came across the Red Sea, dug in against Yahweh, because they liked their trinket gods because it excused them to do their abominable sins. And in contrast to them digging in against a holy God, you got a hooker. A hooker who realized her gods wouldn't do anything that Yahweh would do. And she turns to Yahweh because she saw that Yahweh made a way for her people. Let's finish this up. Have you been living like a Canaanite Have you been indulging in all those abominable sins, idolatry, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, prostitution? I mean, maybe you haven't done some. Have you done any? Have you been living like a Canaanite? Here's here's the good news. This is such good news. God saved a Canaanite hooker. Like, if, if you're like, God's done with me, Hey, if, if you knew what I know about me, West, you'd give up on me. I, I might, but God wouldn't. That's, that's the really great news. He saved a Canaanite hooker. She's probably a temple prostitute. She's probably been engaging in like sexual misconduct, all baptized by a false religion. And God's like, yeah, I'll save her. If she believes in me, we're good. Jesus died for Rahab's sins, and he died for your sins. That's the good news of the gospel. But here's the rest of this story, and this should hit home for a lot of people in this room. God's plan was never for his grace to excuse Rahab to continue as a Canaanite hooker. Like, that's not how the story goes. You need to know that. God's grace was never intended to let a Canaanite hooker continue as a Canaanite hooker, okay? That's not how the story goes. Neither was it his plan to send Jesus to die for your sins so that you could continue to pursue things devoted for destruction. Why? Good news. You are devoted for holiness as a Christian. That's the great news. That's, that's how you need to understand the rest of your life. You are devoted for God as a Christian. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God so that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his glorious light. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and following. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says... The grace of God that brings salvation to all types of people has taught us to say no to ungodliness. God didn't save a Canaanite hooker and his grace didn't enable a Canaanite hooker to stay a Canaanite hooker. She was adopted into the family of God and her life changed. That's his intent for you if you're a Christian. Let's pray. Father, I pray for such a great and powerful understanding of your grace, that we would understand simultaneously that we are forgiven of all of our sins and that we would freely come to you, but that your grace that forgives us also enables us so that Canaanite hookers don't have to stay Canaanite hookers. Father, help us by the empowerment of your grace to live transformed lives, that our lives would glorify you, that we would participate in your kingdom's work, and that we would have an impact on this world that so desperately needs a witness to your goodness. Father, it is only by the finished work, the shed blood of Jesus, that we can stand before you. But it is by that finished work and shed blood, that we are made new creations in Christ as well. Thank you. I pray that we would live in that truth. Amen.